Doing Right by Women in the U.S. Military. Today, Thursday, May 16th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Washington takes on sexual assault in the military. We speak with a survivor who's testified on Capitol Hill. we got to clean this mess up first, and the military can't do it. They've proven that. So now it's time to take someone from the outside to come in and clean it up. Also, an outsider's view of President Obama's crisis-ridden second term, and later fighting for the rights of immigrant domestic workers. Oftentimes, people will get fired for asking for a sick day. They could even get fired for wearing the wrong color shirt and have no recourse. Plus, Barbie's dream house opens in Berlin, and some Germans don't like it. In this dream house, there's a really one-sided picture presented. You can only be a pop star, a top model. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of WomenHeart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The nation's military leaders were summoned to the White House today for a crisis meeting. The focus was not Afghanistan or Syria. It was the wave of sexual assaults among U.S. Armed Forces personnel. This week, in the second such case to emerge, an Army officer in charge of a program to prevent sexual assaults was himself accused of sexual assault. Overall, the Pentagon's own statistics put the number of sexual assaults in the military last year at 26,000. That's some 71 people a day assaulted while serving their country. Sergeant Jennifer Norris knows the issue firsthand. She's a veteran of the U.S. Air Force. Her problem started in 1996 when she first signed on to serve at the age of 24. Right after I enlisted, the recruiter that signed me in um, invited me to what I thought was a squadron-sponsored function, and he called it a quote-unquote new recruit party. Unbeknownst to me, I showed up at his house, and there were no other new recruits there. Um, he had a neighbor over and his wife, and as soon as I walked through the door, he proceeded to try and force alcohol down my throat with drinking games. And so I had like a, a you know, a, a drive back home. I didn't want to drink and drive, so I was like adamantly saying, no, 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 I don't want to drink this. And before I knew it, I was starting to get upset with his behavior and when I stood up, I realized I was dizzy. And I now know that he drugged me. But at the time, I didn't know what was happening. And that's how he was able to have his way and rape me um, was because I was incapacitated. I couldn't move. Um, and I had just started the Air Force. So the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, go into the commander before I even left for basic training and say, hey, your recruiter just raped me. I was still trying to figure it all out. So Jennifer Norris says she soldiered on and started climbing the Air Force ladder. She went to technical training. She got security clearances. But when Sergeant Norris got to her permanent duty station in Maine, she was assaulted by several of her superiors. It was like being in a domestic violence relationship that I couldn't get a divorce from. And I was basically just falling apart on the inside when one day someone noticed that something was wrong with me and they said, you know, how'd you go from being a superior performer, wanting to retire with the military, to you just don't give a damn anymore? Were and you able as to explain why? I did. For some reason, the floodgates just opened and I started bawling and told him everything that I had been through. And 
I told him not to tell anyone, but he said, you know, as an officer in the military, a non-commissioned officer in the military, it was his duty to inform the commander of illegal activity. And I begged him not to tell the commander because I knew once he did that my career would be over and I just wanted my career. So I was hoping I could just transfer out of there and start over somewhere else. But he said, if you don't tell him, I will. So I went and reported all four of the the perpetrators, three of which we know for sure had histories of sexual assault and rape. Jennifer, you know, one of the big pushes on Capitol Hill is to take sexual assault investigations out of the military chain of command. Would that have changed your situation? Absolutely. I was so scared to tell the commander. I just, I just couldn't. I was just like, how is this commander going to believe me when this same man is in his office all the time, very close to him, his right-hand man, they're laughing together. I mean, that's one of my triggers is men laughing together now because that's what happened to me. I would see them laugh together and think, I can't go to him and tell him what happened. They're like best buds. And if it had, if I had been able to report to anyone but the commander, it would have been a way safer situation, for me at least. Because what happens is once you report to your commander, the whole chain of command is informed of what's happened because that's how the military works. So the commander needs to let everyone in your chain of command know that, okay, this is what's going on with this troop right now. We have to do this investigation. And it turns the squadron upside down. In the meantime, I had to leave so the manipulative predators got to stay back at the squadron and sell their version of things. They finally were, I don't want to say adjudicated because they weren't, but they were found guilty to a degree. What do you think is really at the root of this problem? I mean, why has the U.S. military fallen down again and again on this issue? I mean, betraying the women who serve this country. Where's the disconnect? The disconnect is that they never wanted us to begin with. And I'm not talking about my peers. My peers grew up as equals with me. The disconnect is that when they created the all-volunteer force in 1973, it's what Congress wanted, not what the military wanted. I mean, if you read the history books, you can, you can clearly see that the military in times of war was provided with prostitutes There's tons of stories about, you know, what they've done over in Korea with prostitutes and what they've done in Japan with prostitutes and Vietnam with prostitutes. And, you know, when the military put a stop to that where it wasn't kosher anymore, it's almost like they, like, turned to us and expected us to fill those positions. But but haven't those attitudes changed in the last several decades? I mean, women were recently permitted to fight on the front lines. The women who get sent overseas are in the most danger, and we should have we needed to fix the rape problem before we actually put women in combat mm. on the front lines because that's where it's the most dangerous. They're totally dependent on their chain of command overseas, and it's the land of the lawlessness. So I would have really liked to have seen us take care of this first before we start sending people over there. You know, to people like myself, like many of our listeners who've not served and who don't know the military on the inside, it looks like a problem with no end in sight. I mean, I'm just to you, waking up every day to the news stories of sexual assault on uh, other women in the military, how does it seem to you? Oh, it absolutely breaks my heart because I, I was silenced into shame after reporting and I never talked about sexual assault or any of that kind of stuff again. I just soldiered on. 
And then as a result of being angry, anger motivated me and I started looking into things and doing research and then discovered that it was an epidemic and I completely understood why because I was a victim of it. So in addition to doing a lot of research and studying on the issue, including reading the opposition side as to why women shouldn't be in combat and stuff, um, I came to the conclusion that we were a social experiment gone bad. Still, Sergeant Norris, would you advise a young woman, the daughter of a friend or a niece, to join the military? My answer is not right now, but we will work very, very hard to make the military the best that it can be so that someday our daughters can join without being raped and sexually harassed and assaulted. But we got to clean this mess up first, and the military can't do it. They've proven that. So now it's time to take someone from the outside to come in and clean it up. Sergeant Jennifer Norris, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. You're very welcome. Sergeant Jennifer Norris is a veteran of the U.S. Air Force. She's now a member of the Protect Our Defenders Advocacy Committee. The sexual assault crisis at the Pentagon is just one of the many scandals buffeting the Obama administration this week. There's also the controversy over the Justice Department's seizure of journalists' phone records and the outcry over the IRS targeting conservative groups for extra scrutiny. It's all adding up to a very gloomy week for the White House. At a press conference there today, a reporter asked President Obama this. And more broadly, how do you feel about comparisons by some of your critics of this week's scandals to those that happened under the Nixon administration? Well, yeah, I'll let you guys engage in those comparisons. Uh, and uh, you, 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 you can go ahead and uh, read the history, I think, and, and draw your own conclusions. Uh, my concern is making sure that if there's a problem in the government, that we fix it. That's my responsibility. Uh, and that's what we're going to do. The president's woes are making news around the globe, too. Laure Mandeville is Washington correspondent for the French newspaper Le Figaro. It's true that it, it's a, not the best moment for Obama. At the same time, it, what I, I was struck by was that the president was, in fact, trying to um, answer the, the wave of criticism by saying that he's going to fix all the problems that he encounters. Right. Let's talk about one piece, a uh, big piece of his foreign policy right now, Syria. He's been kind of sitting on the fence uh, regarding the conflict there. I mean, even in the press conference today, his reference to a red line for intervention, use of chemical weapons, seemed kind of more and more like a maroon line. Let's hear that. What I've said is that uh, the use of chemical weapons uh, are something that uh, the civilized world has recognized uh, should be out of bounds. And, you know, as we gather more evidence and work together, uh, my intention is to make sure that we're presenting uh, everything that we know to the international community uh, as uh, an additional uh, uh, reason, an additional mechanism for the international community uh, to put all the pressure that they can on uh, the Assad regime. Laurent Mandeville, do you think uh, the political blowback Obama could be dealing with domestically could affect plans or potential plans uh, for dealing with the Syria conflict? Well, I think that, you know, Obama has been pretty clear all the way uh, about Syria and that he doesn't want to go into this conflict. And he was referring now to this red line as something the, the international community, I mean, towards he kept repeating during the questions about Syria, you know, the international community has to deal with it. In other words, it's not an American problem. 
And then there's the violence and deaths of four Americans in Benghazi, Libya last year, including uh, Ambassador Christopher Stevens. That's a hot potato that keeps landing in Obama's lap. Is that playing overseas? I mean, we're following it overseas, but uh, not to such an extent. It's really, you know, frustrating because on the one hand, it's true that Obama appears pretty weak and always giving complex answers to questions, and it's not very satisfactory. From a European point of view, it's funny because... When George W. Bush was in power, the Europeans were complaining because Bush was too black and white and too interventionist. And now Europeans are complaining about, you know, too weak a president and not enough U.S. presence. And there's always something to criticize. What is true is that, you know, the, this sort of worry about Obama being weak, it has meaning because I think that the Europeans feel they are extremely weakened as well. And, you know, and realizing that they're weak and seeing that across the pond, America is shaky also and divided and not able to get to any kind of consensus on key issues, that's pretty worrying for the whole Western world. And uh, that's part of the, the equation. So uh, as a Washington correspondent, Law, do you think there's any chance uh, for a breakthrough for Obama? Can he turn his fortunes around? I mean, the frequent Nixon comparisons make it seem difficult right now. What's me since I've been here is that it's very fickle to Washington. I mean, sometimes they, they take on a, on a story, it seems the end of the world, and three days later, it has totally disappeared. So the, the real question is, is he going to be able to pass some kind of uh, important legislation? I think the immigration bill is still a big one, which, which could be a success that he desperately needs. Laure Mandeville, correspondent for the French newspaper Le Figaro, speaking with us from the shifting ground that is Washington, D.C. Laure, thank you. Thank you. In search of elusive moon rocks, still ahead on the world, this is Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. German Chancellor Angela Merkel has been called the most powerful woman in the world. But this week, another polarizing female figure is getting a lot of attention in Berlin. It's that anatomically impossible icon, Barbie. She's a star of a new life-size dollhouse that opened today. Barbie, the Dreamhouse Experience, has provoked protests for weeks now, including a topless woman who burned a Barbie doll on a cross in front of the Dreamhouse. But it's also raising some uncomfortable questions about the status of women in Germany now. Susan Stone has a story from Berlin. The flashy pink townhouse flanked by a giant high-heeled shoe looks a bit out of place in gritty urban Berlin as it rises up in front of some East German tower blocks. But it's the scene inside that prompted Michael Koschitzky and others to form the protest group Occupy Barbie Dreamhouse. The first room I've seen was the kitchen where children, they have to do cupcakes, they do it virtually. Um, at the same time, Ken is outside a virtual window, is cleaning the car. Since her debut in 1959, Barbie has always been a color-coordinated career girl, from computer engineer to aerobic instructor, astronaut to news anchor. That's not the case here, says Kaczynski. In this dream house, there's a really one-sided picture presented. You can only be a pop star, a top model. 
I was told that no matter what you do in Berlin, there is a protest. The man behind Barbie's Berlin Dreamhouse is Austrian Christoph Rahofer, who produced the attraction in conjunction with toymaker Mattel. He was surprised by the vitriolic reaction to what he considers family entertainment. So this is the Barbie Dreamhouse, and we're not meant to be a career opportunity center. Um, we are trying to have fun. And also make money. Entering the Barbie Dreamhouse experience costs about $15, and there's an additional fee for costumes and makeup to walk the catwalk or soundstage. Naturally, you exit through a gift shop filled with Barbie paraphernalia. Ten years ago, we would have said, oh, things like that only happen in the U.S. or the U.K. Stevie Schmiedel says the arrival of the Dreamhouse just highlights some troubling questions about German society. Sexism that's out there in advertising, in the toy industry, basically conditions women into accepting that they will enter the workplace and will not earn as much as men. Schmiedel is with the group Pink Stinks Germany. It aims to stop what she calls the pinkification of girls' culture as a way to get at bigger issues. Schmiedel points out that Germany has the largest gender pay gap in Europe, and women here are more likely to be in long-term unemployment and less likely to hold high-level executive jobs, despite having a woman as head of state. But should all that really be placed on the shoulders of an 11-and-a-half-inch American doll? Based on Barbie's history, it's fascinating that the Germans bristle so much about the message that the current incarnation of the Barbie doll is giving to young girls. M.G. Lord is author of Forever Barbie, the unauthorized biography of a real doll. She wrote about Barbie's German origins. Mattel transformed a sexy 1950s German cartoon figure named Lily into a groundbreaking doll that allowed little girls to fantasize about single adulthood, not just motherhood. Lord says neither the simplified choices offered in the Dreamhouse experience nor the protesters' knee-jerk reactions do justice to Barbie's history. I think it's reductionist to assume that Barbie represents an ideal of womanhood or that Barbie is wholly negative and represents some really damaging image of womanhood. I mean, she's just a plastic object. Children can play with her as they see fit. And they do. Mattel says a Barbie is sold every three seconds somewhere in the world. As for the Dreamhouse experience, another permanent one opened last week in Florida to no protest. Barbie's controversial Berlin abode will remain in the city until August 25th. Then will wend its pink way throughout Germany and on to the rest of Europe. For The World, I'm Susan Stone, Berlin. We've got a lot of Berlin Barbie action on our website, including the Angela Merkel Barbie doll. It's all at theworld.org. And while we're on the subject of dolls... Patrick Cox, you're not a doll. You're a language editor. I uh, never thought you and I would be talking about dolls. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much we haven't talked about, Marco. I did come across a set of talking dolls. Give a listen to this. Hello. My name is Nina. I'm a very lovely, beautiful girl. I love okay, she's beautiful. She doesn't walk, but she talks. So what else? Well, Nina, this doll, she doesn't just speak English. She also speaks four indigenous languages spoken in Nigeria, one of them being Yoruba. Now, how do we say in Yoruba? Welcome, Kabo. Good morning, Kara. Good night, Odara. Goodbye, Odabo. Add numbers 1 to 10. Oko, Eiji, Eta. Wow, Nina the Nigerian polyglot doll. 
And there are more. You know, there are other polyglot dolls in this series, each representing a country or a region in Africa. And the idea is, is that if you're raising a kid, especially if you're away from home and the native tongue is not uh, around you, you can at least expose your kids to a few of these words. Um, these dolls are called Rudy dolls. They're the brainchild of a Nigerian husband and wife who live in London. And yes, they do have daughters. I guess that's where the inspiration came from. So what do these dolls look like, Patrick? Because I know in the past, American doll makers have been criticized for their rendition of non-white dolls. Yeah, the company points to the fact that these dolls have got wider noses, fuller lips than your average Barbie, certainly. And there's variation among them. So, you know, they each look different from another. But I have to say that they do have much longer hair than most African little girls would do. And on most of the dolls, the hair is wavy rather than curly. And Nina, the Yoruba doll, her hair is kind of dark blonde. Wow, okay, that's kind of weird. Well, give us a lowdown on one of the languages that Nina speaks. That would be Yoruba. It's uh, the native language I know of many famous Nigerians, uh, Nobel Prize winner Wole Shoyinka, musician Fela Kuti. That's right. Yoruba is spoken by between 20 and 30 million people, mainly in Nigeria, but also in parts of Benin and Togo. And Wale Shoyinka, he's been talking recently about how worried he is for the future survival of the language. And he's not alone, that the young don't speak it very well. And this has been noticed by uh, a lot of people. They don't study the language much either. And there have been calls to reform the schools so the language of instruction becomes Yoruba in those Yoruba-speaking parts of Nigeria. And it may sound like, you know, 20 to 30 million speakers, that they're not on the verge of the language vanishing or anything like that. But I think the idea is to head off the crisis before it arrives. The World's Patrick Cox hosts our language podcast, The World in Words, and you can hear much more about Yoruba and dolls in the latest edition. That's at theworld.org. Patrick, thanks. You're very welcome, Marco. Early music from Fela Kuti. The tune is called Echo, and Echo happens to be the original Yoruba name of the Nigerian city Fela hailed from. The Portuguese colonizers saw the lagoon there and called the city Lagos, but for Yoruba, it's Echo, which, depending on whom you ask, could mean either cassava farm or war camp, your Yoruba lesson for the day. This is The World from PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman, coming up on The World, fighting for the rights of nannies and caregivers. Many are immigrants and part of a fast-growing industry that's often ignored. It's considered invisible, it's not real work, and it's women's work. So there is so much cultural difficulty into asserting this kind of work. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The immigration reform debate is heating up in Washington. Lawmakers are vigorously negotiating to shape the bills in both the House and Senate. Reform could bring big changes for one industry that's often ignored. Domestic workers, people who work in private homes as house cleaners, nannies, and caregivers, almost all are women, and many are undocumented immigrants. As part of our Global Nation coverage of immigration issues, Odette Youssef of station WBEZ in Chicago reports. Mirla Baldonado left the Philippines for Chicago six years ago. Most of her time here, she's cared for elderly people in their homes, attending to their round-the-clock needs. She made their beds, fixed meals, and monitored them for symptoms of stroke or illness. Baldonado worked like this for years, putting in 96-hour weeks, at $4 an hour. Like most immigrants, I tried not to pay attention to it. Baldonado said that wage was standard, what other caregivers got too. And she needed a job. But then when I started being shouted at, and I felt being discriminated for not being an original English speaker, I felt, I felt so bad. Baldonado recalls how the son of one client bullied her on the job. She asked her staffing agency for help. They told her to be more assertive. So Baldonado quit. Now she's an organizer, pushing for legislation in Illinois to give other domestic workers more firepower in similar situations, especially newcomers to the U.S. who might not realize their basic rights. Baldonado says it's hard because people don't think of domestic workers as workers. It's considered invisible. It's not real work. And it's women's work. So there is so much cultural difficulty into asserting this kind of work. Lots of people in this movement use the word invisible when they describe domestic workers. One reason? Many of them are undocumented immigrants. A survey by the University of Illinois at Chicago found more than a third of domestic workers are here illegally. And of domestic workers, they're the most exploited and abused. Undocumented domestic workers earn less than their peers, they're more likely to be injured on the job, and they're less likely to quit or complain. Ai-jen Poo says they do the work that Americans won't do. We often call it the work that makes all other work possible. Who is director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. The group helped New York and Hawaii adopt domestic workers' bills of rights. The bills give domestic workers the right to overtime pay, paid time off, and freedom from sexual harassment. And most important, these bills protect all domestic workers, legal and those without papers. Pooh says that's crucial because federal law makes it difficult for domestic workers to unionize. So those without legal status have the least leverage to negotiate their working conditions. Oftentimes, people will get fired for asking for a sick day, or they will—they could even get fired for wearing the wrong color shirt and have no recourse. In New York, domestic workers can now file complaints about mistreatment with the state's labor department. Other states are considering similar measures. But there's a new concern. Congress is debating new immigration laws. The proposals so far favor immigrants who can prove they've worked continuously in the U.S. They would also have employers tap into a verification system to check a worker's status. 
That worries Maureen Pertil. Domestic workers working under the table or for people who may not even consider themselves to be employers are not going to have access to that. Pertil is an immigrant organizer with the Grayton Day Labor Center in California. She says the proposal ignores cases where the employer's just a family looking for a nanny. They might not be plugged into a verification system like a big business is. So women and families are especially vulnerable to being excluded from the immigration reform process. The National Domestic Workers Alliance is lobbying to clarify language in an immigration bill now making its way through the Senate. They want to make sure it gives low-wage women, like domestic workers, the chance to achieve legal status. Meanwhile, Mirla Baldonado from the Philippines says organizing her fellow domestic workers is tough. Many have battered self-esteem and fear being reported to immigration officials and deported. But she's noticing that more are getting involved for the same reason she did. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to just live for, for the money and not get any respect and dignity for the work I'm doing. Baldonado is confident that domestic workers won't be invisible much longer, and there's good reason to believe that. Baby boomers are aging, and more immigrants are fulfilling the need for home caregivers, now projected to be among the fastest-growing occupations of the decade. For The World, I'm Odette Youssef, Chicago. Now to a story about a Mediterranean island nation and a missing rock. Our GeoQuiz today starts with the Apollo moon missions. The astronauts brought back rocks from the lunar surface, and later President Nixon gave some of them as gifts to different nations around the globe. Problem is, this Mediterranean island country we want you to name was at war in 1974 when its moon rock was to be presented, and in the chaos, the rock went missing. Four decades later, an American law professor is on the case. Each semester that I teach the Moon Rock Project, I ask my students to uh, pick one moon rock and assign them the task to hunt the moon rock down wherever it might be in the world. We'll speak with this moon rock sleuth and find out what happened to the missing gift. First, though, take a few minutes to come up with the name of the eastern Mediterranean island nation that's now divided between Greeks and Turks. Syrian mortar shells landed in northern Israel this week and the Golan Heights. They didn't cause any damage, but they were a reminder for residents of the Israeli-controlled territory that many years of relative quiet there may be coming to an end. The world's Matthew Bell paid a visit to the ceasefire line that divides longtime enemies Syria and Israel. A hulking white armored vehicle with big black letters UN passes through a checkpoint in the Golan Heights from the Syrian to the Israeli side. These soldiers in camouflage uniforms and powder blue helmets are part of the United Nations Disengagement Observer Force. The force has been here since 1974, and its mission has largely been a success. 1,200 peacekeepers help prevent Syria and Israel from going to war. But Syria's own civil war is putting the UN operation in jeopardy. For the second time, Syrian rebels last week kidnapped a group of U.N. observers from the Philippines. They were released, but their government said it plans to bring its contingent of peacekeepers home. That's an ominous sign for Israeli residents of the Golan Heights. 
At Alonai Habashan, they've been cleaning out the bomb shelters and updating emergency plans just in case. This community is home to a few hundred Israelis, and it's just a few hundred yards from Israel's border fence along the Syrian frontier. But the newly rebuilt fence didn't stop two stray Syrian rockets from landing in their village, says Israel Bar. It's extremely uncomfortable, Barr says. We've had all these years of quiet here in the Golan, and now, suddenly, there's a lot to worry about. Barr says the sound of fighting in Syria can be heard clearly and often from here. Residents are more careful about hiking in the area. They're also applying for permits to keep weapons in their home. Errant shells are one thing. For many here, what's really alarming is that the Syrian army might decide to start attacking Israelis. Israel Radio this week reported on a direct threat from Syria. The report included comments from Syria's information minister. He said the Golan Heights, which Israel captured in the 1967 war, still belong to Syria, from the sky above to the earth below, and that Syria will do whatever it takes to liberate the territory from Israeli occupation. That kind of rhetoric is nothing new, but there is a new reality. Israel is thought to have bombed Syria three times this year to stop weapons being transferred to Syria's ally Hezbollah in Lebanon. Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, has warned that another Israeli strike would bring retaliation. Many Israelis consider Assad to be the devil they know. But the raging civil war brings uncertainty. His threats have to be taken seriously right now, says Inbal alone. She's an Israeli tourist visiting the Golan Heights with her husband and their two daughters. Assad has a lot of power, alone says. He could start a war with Israel and that could mean a lot of people getting killed. She doesn't know what comes next in Syria. But she says at this point, Assad is bad for Israel. She hopes the rebels get rid of him. Still, what will be in Syria is a troublesome question for many Israelis living in the Golan Heights. Maybe it can be like in the Gaza border, uh, like a terror situation. Elisha Yellen has lived in the Golan Heights for 45 years. He fought with the Israeli army against Syrian troops during the 1973 war. He says maybe people here are in denial about what might change along the ceasefire line. Yellen is standing near the U.N. checkpoint, looking at the Israeli flag on one side and the Syrian flag just beyond it. I think this is the best situation if it will be very clear border between us and the Syrian. Again, Syrian flag. I have no problem with the Syrian flag. Because this is a sign of of government, of controlling, of, of something that you can trust. That flag, he says, might be the flag of Israel's enemy, but it's also a sign of stability. Yellen says what he really worries about is the U.N. peacekeeping force pulling out, Islamic extremist groups taking over the area, and a failed state situation right next door in Syria. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell. Where are they now? We're not talking about long-forgotten celebrities. Think instead rocks, moon rocks, and specifically that missing moon rock we told you about in our geo-quiz. President Richard Nixon famously gave the moon rocks to foreign countries as gifts, but the one intended for the nation of Cyprus went missing for decades. So Cyprus 
is the answer to our quiz today. Joe Goodhines teaches at the University of Phoenix, and if you need to find a missing moon rock, he is your guy. Joe, tell us about the Cypress case. Was a moon rock ever actually given to Cypress as a gift? We were supposed to have given two moon rocks to Cypress, an Apollo 11 moon rock and an Apollo 17 goodwill moon rock. What happened in 1973 and 1974, the time frame when the moon rock would have been presented to Cyprus, is that island nation was on fire. There was terrorist activities. Our ambassador to Cyprus was actually uh, assassinated on August 18, 1974. That's the U.S. ambassador. Mm. And so we lost track of the gifting of the Apollo 17 moon rock. And so... It was a mystery. And in 2002, my graduate students determined that both moon rocks were missing. So do you have any suspicions where they might be? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, The uh, Apollo 11 probably was lost or is in somebody's private collection right now. The Apollo 17 is actually six miles from where I'm at presently. It's at Johnson Space Center adjacent to the Lunar Lab actually sitting there with the Nigerian Apollo 11 moon rock that was recently recovered. So the long story short is that from 2003, NASA knew that a diplomat's child had the moon rock, but they did nothing about it. Uh, In 2009, I uh, kind of blew the whistle on the fact that NASA was sleeping on the stick and that they were not actively trying to recover this moon rock. The diplomat's kid hired a law firm in Washington, D.C., and started to negotiate with NASA for five months until the moon rock was turned over. And then NASA did something rather strange. It sat on it for three years. Why? Well, the theory is is that Cyprus is viewed as a divided country between the Turks and the Greeks. The United States didn't want to appear to be taking sides. And so they did nothing. Finally, Cyprus spoke up and they said, hey, this is our property. Thank you very much. We'd like it back. And now Cyprus has announced that it's coming back. Remind us what the purpose of these gifts was in the first place and why you feel so strongly that the rock should go back to Cyprus. In 1969, when we decided to give the member nations of the United Nations each a moon rock, it was designed to basically bring everybody in the world together on a common cause to conquer the moon, then Mars and beyond. We said, hey, look, these moon rocks are really for the children of your nation. And we don't care if you have a dictator that runs your country or if it's a wonderful democracy. It's not for you, dictator. It's not for you, president. It's for your people. How many moon rocks are there floating out there that you'd like to track down? Well, in terms of the number that were given to the nations of the world, the 270 that were given to the nations of the world, we believe that somewhere in the neighborhood of 158 are still unaccounted for. And so each semester that I teach the Moon Rock Project, I ask my students to uh, pick one moon rock and uh, assign them the task to hunt the moon rock down wherever it might be in the world. How far afield have your students gone to find moon rocks? I have one student that tracked down a a moon rock in uh, the Republic of Ireland to a dump. When that story came out, a number of people with shovels came out there and started digging around. The problem is, is that moon rock was buried for over 30 years, and good luck trying to find it.
You know, I, I remember when those moon rocks were making the rounds here in the States. In museums, you'd have these lines that would rival the lines to see King Tut, and people just wanted to touch the moon rocks. And now they're flung all over. Nobody knows where they are. It's kind of sad. Uh, it really is. That of 270 moon rocks that we gifted to the nations of the world, those nations can't account for 158 of them. Well, and hopefully as we go along, some more will turn up. Well, Joe, we'll keep our eyes out. Moon Rock investigator Joseph Goodhines at the University of Phoenix. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. We had a bit of a debate in the newsroom as to whether or not we should cover this next story. The headline, David Beckham is retiring from soccer. Now, there are several people in our newsroom who don't follow soccer, and yet they know who David Beckham is. For them, this announcement was a big story, and there are others in our newsroom who follow soccer religiously. For them... It's not that big a deal, more celebrity news than anything else. The world's William Troop falls into the latter category. William, in the grand pantheon of soccer players, where will David Beckham rate? Well, let's just keep a level head about this, okay? <laughs> I know he's a big name, but he is neither going to be thought of as uh, one of the greatest of his generation, nor is he going to be considered completely devoid of talent. He's somewhere in the middle. There's obviously some talent there that allowed him to make his mark as a young player in England with Manchester United, one of the biggest clubs of the past uh, couple of decades, then go to a huge club like Real Madrid in Spain, then come to the U.S. and uh, raise the level of a league that was uh, struggling to uh, be taken seriously, and then conclude his career in Paris with a team that's up and coming now as one of the best in the continent there. All the while, he's done really well at all these teams. He's won different national championships in four different countries with four different teams. So you can't say the guy's not good. But even he uh, doesn't see himself as, uh, you know, right up there with, uh, you know, Pelé and Maradona and you name it. Here's what he told uh, Sky News today after announcing his retirement. I just want people to, to see me as a, as a hard-working footballer, someone that's passionate about the game and someone that every time I stepped on the pitch, um, I've given everything that I have um, because that's a, that's how I feel going into games at the end of my career that's how I, I look back on it and hope people will see me uh, what about all the talk about Beckham being more marketing than sporting skill anything there well there there is some truth to that after the beginning of his career which was much more based on his soccer skill he did become uh, more of a marketing celebrity. He had big endorsements. Even his marriage to a, a singer from the Spice Girls, Victoria, kind of raised his celebrity profile. And he, he tried to use that as a tool to bring attention to causes that he wanted to. Um, today, the British uh, Prime Minister, David Cameron, praised David Beckham for being a, a really great ambassador for the UK. And he highlighted how David Beckham helped Britain get assigned the uh, 2012 Summer Olympics. It had to have helped his brand as well to have his name in a beloved movie title, Bend It Like Beckham, referring to that trademark kick of his from way outside. And he's an absolute wizard at bending in those free kicks, it has to be said. So he's 38 years old. I mean, he's a youngin. It's still enough time to build a second chapter in something. Any word on what he's going to do next? Well, he, he's already uh, signed on to become a, an ambassador for soccer in China. But also, David Beckham has said that he wants to invest in becoming an owner of a pro soccer team here in the U.S., and uh, if he does that, that would be a, a big deal again because he has the resources to uh, invest in something like that, which are not always easy to find. 
The world's William Troop has been known to bend it like Beckham from time to time. I've seen uh, it on Only the pitch. occasionally. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay, let's say you're a popular American band about to release a new album. You've picked the first single and you want to release it early, and you want a killer video to go with it. So where do you turn for inspiration? Well, if you're the group, the national, you look into the murky past of a Soviet-era punk band called Zvuki Mu. Here's the world's Clark Boyd. Punkish, semi-organized, often discordant. Zvuki Mu was all of that, and then some. In the late 1980s, Svuki Mu, uh, that translates as the sounds of Mu, epitomized a new generation's struggle to throw off the Soviet way of life. Gorbachev's Soviet Union was a place that was pregnant with change. It was aching to change. Martin Walker was based in Moscow for the Guardian newspaper from 1983 to 1989. He first saw Svuki Mu perform in a workers' cafeteria in a factory on the outskirts of Moscow. Ukimu was somewhere where the new underground art scene, performance art, came together with rock and roll, came together with a kind of theater. This sense of a combined frustration and anger with the nature of Soviet life was completely palpable. The music of Svukimu was biting, mocking, and ironic. Walker describes Svukimu performances as Tolstoy and Bob Dylan meet Sid Vicious in a grimy squat that's part nightclub, part artist's studio. This track's called Grubi Zakat, Rough Sunset. Spooky Moo's video for the song embodied all the strange strands the band brought together. It's just the four members in a cramped, white, windowless room. I'll buy it with an air conditioner. They're banging away at their instruments. Lead singer Pyotr Mamanov contorts himself in almost inhuman ways. And the video is one continuous shot. There's no editing. You would think something like this would be lost to the mists of time. Not so, thanks to YouTube. I fell in love with it immediately. That's Bryce Dessner, guitarist for the Brooklyn-based band The National. We said, oh, we have to do something like this. So we spent quite a lot of time trying to reach them, and specifically trying to reach uh, the singer, Pyotr Mamanov. And I think we eventually got an email for his wife and wrote, but never heard back. The National pressed ahead anyway. With a new album about to come out, they chose one of the singles, a track called Sea of Love, and in an homage to Zvuki Mu, completely recreated the look and feel of the video to the smallest, weirdest detail. It's also bizarre um, playing in a tiny, basically a basement room with just an air conditioner hanging over them and their their guitars are plugged into the air conditioner. You know, about 30 seconds into it, um, a small boy kind of wades into the frame and stands right in front of the band and plays air guitar for the rest of the song. And that just seems so cool and kind of subversively funny. The Nationals' Bryce Dessner says it took the band eight or nine takes to get it. For Dessner, it was especially tough because he had to contort himself like Spooky Moo's Pyotr Mamanov in the original. I was tasked with the uh, imitation of him, which was not an easy feat, and uh, it was quite exhausting, actually. Imagine running a four-minute foot race over and over with a guitar strapped to you. Dessner says it was worth it, though. Making this video was just really fun and, uh, and a kind of... Uh, bizarre event for us. It was it was, it was really interesting and, and to pay tribute to this to this uh, Russian punk band that we you know musically we all really like. 
so we're, we're excited that people are getting to hear it. You know, some of our fans are discovering that music for the first time for sure. If I stay here, trouble will find me. If I stay here, I'll never... Maybe this is the Nationals' new thing. Recently, they played their song Sorrow for six straight hours as part of an Icelandic artist's exhibit in New York. Call it the band's Russian phase. For the world, this is Clark Boyd. You'll most definitely want to see how the national Sea of Love video stacks up against Vuki Moo's original. We've got them both at theworld.org. That's all from us today from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Back with you tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.